0: Father, it is well with our soul to know that through trials and tribulations you are there. To know that no matter what happens in this life, you are there. Father, on the Sabbath day, on this set-apart time, we come to you and we ask, Lord, humbly before you that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. To see your spirit moving in our midst, to see the promises that you have given us in the present. Father, we lift up the Robertson family to you this week, Father, as they have lost Eric's dad, as he has gone to be with you father father we ask that during this time of mourning that you would be there and bring peace to their family father i lift up my family to you in the passing of our uncle kenny and i ask that you would be with his children with our extended family father i lift up Joyce Moreno to you, Father. And ask you to continue to work a miracle on her behalf. Father, I lift up Cameron as he is in Israel. And Father, I ask that you would just continue to pour out your spirit in his midst, Father. That what has already been a life-changing experience would only continue to grow in his heart. Father, I pray for Daniel as he gets ready to head to New Zealand. I ask, Lord, that you would go before him, that you would prepare the way, Father, for all of those that he will speak to, that you would anoint him with the message that you would have for him. Father, for all of those unspoken prayer requests, you know, give them peace, give them comfort, give them wisdom, Father, that they would know that you are working in their midst. For it's in the name of Yeshua we humbly come before you. Amen and amen. All right, little ones. It's that time... Time to bless you hi Kayla hi Abby Asher hey guys I heard through the grapevine that there's a kids class today I mean none of you guys came here for the kids class right you guys came here to hear me teach today The parents laughed. Oh, that's bad. You know it's bad when the parents laugh.
1: (laughs) All right. Let's pour out a blessing on these little ones on this Sabbath day. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of this Sabbath, the blessings of this congregation, the facility that we have here that we can um, join together with a holy convocation with one another, with all the brethren in this community. And Father, we thank you for all of these beautiful little ones that are before us. We pour out a blessing upon them. And Father, as we, as a community and as a fellowship, Father, we pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon each and every one of these beautiful smiling faces this morning. Father, for the opportunity that it is to raise up these children, I pray that we would always uh, stand firm to protect each and every one of these little kids from anything that might cause them harm. That we would always stand in the gap and protect these, just like you said, Lord, that if anyone causes any harm to one of these kids, it's as if they cause harm to you. So, Father, I pray that anyone who has an opportunity to speak to any one of these children, may it be your words of life that are spoken to them. May you always grant your wisdom, Lord, into the hearts and minds of the parents, the elders, that have an opportunity to rear up these children. Father, I pray that you would always protect them, guard their eyes and their ears, anything that they might see or hear in this world, Father, that would... Uh, Cause hurt or harm to them, Father. I pray that you would just blunt the plans of the enemy and the works of the world, Lord, that would pollute their minds. And Father, guard their mouth and their lips, Father, anything they might say. Father, I pray that you would protect them, cause them to not say anything they would regret. May it always be words of kindness upon their lips. Protect their heart and mind, Lord, and fill it with your spirit, Lord. May no spirit that is not of you enter into their life. Protect them, Lord. Watch over them. We thank you, Lord, for these beautiful children. Pour out a blessing upon them. Upon the sons, may they be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Make them fruitful and multiply. And on the daughters, may they be as Ruth and as Esther. Make them righteous daughters of Zion. We bless them all on this Sabbath day. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.
2: All right, so it is good to be back. Um, So I wanted to uh, come up and and share with you a little bit. Uh, There's way too much uh, to share with the last two weeks that I experienced. But there was was one thing in particular that I think uh, was really poignant. So uh, there was a a moment there where we... um, The group that I was with, we got a military escort. The IDF escorted us up on top of Mount Eval, which is the the mount where the six tribes stood and pronounced the curses. Where I was staying was on uh, Habrachah, Mount Gerizim, where the six tribes pronounced the blessings, okay? And so in between these two mountains, there's this valley, and in that valley is the biblical Shechem, shechem, we would say here in Oklahoma, okay? Okay. and uh, it is currently known by the Arab name Nablus, okay? And so there's about 200,000 residents there, in uh, Palestinian Arab residents in Nablus. Um, however, those that are of the uh, religious community there in Israel, um, many of them refuse to refer to it as Nablus. They refer to it as its biblical name, Shechem, okay? And so... Um, we, uh, we, got our, we had to go around the mountain because um, you cannot, unless you're Arab, you cannot drive through Nablus. Um, if you do, you're taking your life into your own hands. That's a whole other story. But we had to drive all the way around uh, Habracha, all the way around Mount Gerizim, uh, to the west side of Mount Eval. Uh, and there we picked up the military escort. And they took us up through the outskirts of Nablus, uh, up on top of Mount Eval. And the reason why they took us up there was because just a couple of years ago, um, Joshua's altar was uncovered on top of Mount Eval. Now, it's on the opposite side of the mountain as Mount Gerizim, so you can't see it from there. You have to go around on top of the mountain and around to the back side of it to see it. But it was pretty incredible. Well, uh, the military escort that went with us, there were about seven or eight IDF soldiers that were with us, you know, in full gear and everything. And, uh, because the area we were in was, uh, technically Arab territory, and there were Arab shepherds around us and things of this nature, but, um, what was interesting was, uh, so the, the guy that was leading us, his name was Josh Waller, and, um, he, he can speak Hebrew, and so he was talking with the IDF soldiers as we were standing there, um, everyone, you know, walking around and looking at all there was with this, this huge altar that Joshua had, uh, had created, and, um, so one of the questions that Josh asked uh, the soldiers was, uh, do any of you wear kippot? Uh, does any of you wear a kippah? And he, he was asking that specifically to find out if any of them had a religious faith. Because if they had a religious faith and they were not just secular, then they would have been wearing a kippah. And one guy said, yeah, uh, Ken, uh, I, yes, I wear a, a kippot. Um, and so Josh is talking to him. And when there is a, a break in the conversation, and they're talking Hebrew. I only catch, up, catch a, a, a word or two. But as there's a break in the conversation, I had a question uh, to Josh about the city. And so I asked him, him some question about Nablus. And, uh, and then when I got done uh, with that question, I realized, uh, you know, I made a mistake. I, I called it Nablus. And so I said, Lo Nablus, which is, excuse me. Shechem, not Nablus, okay, and it was just an offhanded remark, and Josh kind of laughed at at that you know, but about a minute later, the soldier that Josh had been talking to turns to to Josh and he says, "Mazleychem what what is this Shechem right The soldier had no idea what what Shechem was, okay. And so, as it turns out, he was he was new to that region. He had just been assigned to that military base uh, like a matter of weeks ago, and he's from a, another part of Israel, and he wasn't familiar with the terrain, but he also wasn't familiar with the biblical stories about what took place in Shechem, about how the the twelve sons of of Jacob, um, you know, came and and they had this whole thing where Dinah was. Deflowered, and and they said, "Well, if you circumcise yourselves, then you can marry our daughters and or uh, marry our our sister, and all this." And then, of course, they you know went and slaughtered all the men in the city after that. And it's also the place where uh, Joseph's bones are buried. Um, Joseph, before he uh, passed away, he he made his family promise, take my bones up. Don't bury me here in Egypt, but take my bones up to Shechem. Um, Jacob purchased a field from Chamor there in Shechem. And uh, so it it has a lot of um, biblical significance. And the fact that there's a natural amphitheater that's right there in the valley between the two mountains, it was entirely possible for uh, the way the sound traveled, um, was when you're standing on the mountain, it was pretty amazing. But it was entirely possible for the six tribes, you know, one million plus to be on one mountain and one million plus to be on the other mountain, and for them to address each other, pronouncing the blessings and the curses, and for Joshua to be in the middle, being able to address them both and everyone to be able to hear, okay? Um, just because of the, the natural amphitheater that is created in that valley, it's, it's pretty amazing. But... What stood out to me here was that this soldier he then tells josh, he says, "I'm going to go study my Bible as when I get back to the base, and I'm going to learn about this shechem okay To me, that stood out because look the the offhanded comment of some goofy looking tourist. Um, who, who these, these soldiers who are native Israelis born in the land, speaking the language, and they were curious about, they had heard rumors about some Joshua's altar and these, these tourists came and they were all about this. Wow, look at this altar. This is awesome. It, It confirms the biblical events, you know, and everything of this nature. And these guys are just hearing about it and they live there. And they speak the language, and yet some goofy tourist just makes an offhanded comment, and, he, and it inspires him to say, I'm going to go study my Bible. You know, it, it just goes to the point that we can be a light no matter where we are. That, that our testimony and, and walking the way that we, we do in faith... That we can be an influence on others even when we don't intend to be. Even when it's a, a, a flippant comment, uh, you, you know, it can be something that can spur someone. And so I just wanted to share that, that little portion with you as an encouragement today. That, um, you know, as we, we continue to walk, that there are those that are seeing how we walk. Seeing how, uh, how we conduct ourselves, hearing what we're saying. And so we can always be a light no matter where we are. So I just wanted to share that with you. So thank you.
0: Well, I'm glad that you are back, even if it's just for a week. I slept in for five extra minutes this morning because I knew that you would be here to help set up. So how's everybody doing? Some of you are doing fantastic. Some of you are sleeping I mean, it is a day of rest, so I cannot really get on you, um, but uh, I've got something I think is is pretty deep today. Um, you know, it's been weighing on me pretty heavily all week long, uh, spent an awful lot of time in prayer, uh, spent an awful lot of time on the phone with those I, I consider a lot wiser than myself, um, and honestly, it's really kind of revolutionizing how I look at the last 13 years of my spiritual walk so and just real quick because i'm going to need i'm going to need every bit of time today and even then i'm going to have to uh, leave out um, some points i had about eight pages as of yesterday evening of bullet point notes so don't worry i'm not going to hit you with all those today i'll just kind of give you the 50,000 foot uh, view of that maybe the lord will allow this to be a multi-part teaching in the future i don't know But before we start, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for each and every person who is here. And Father, today I ask that by the power of your spirit that you would give us ears to hear an open heart and eyes to see, to see exactly what you would have for us today, Father, to hear exactly what you would have for us. And then, Father, that every one of my words would be your words, not my own. Father, I ask that you would come into this place right now, and that you would just move in the hearts of all of us, and you would meet us here with your teaching today. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, so today the teaching's title is Yeshua Conquered Death Before the Cross. Um, In order for us to talk about the cross and the conquering of death and sin, um, we first have to lay out kind of an outline of what was the sin? How did they get there? And kind of give you some of the historical elements of the narrative of the Bible. So we're going to start in Genesis 2. Like I said, there's there's about eight pages, so I'm only going to get you pretty much Adam and Eve today. Um, and then I'll make some references, but that's about as far as we're going to get uh, into the in-depth. So... Genesis 2.8, it says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you've got all these trees, they're good for food in the garden, in the midst of the garden you have two trees. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God makes a point in this passage to separate those two trees from the other trees that are there. So there was an importance about those two trees that are different from all the other trees in the garden which were good for food. For uh, all my vegetarians in the house, you can just keep quoting this verse. uh, And uh, see, God said the trees were good for food. So... Um, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pason. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stones are there, and the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel, and it is one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord took man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Anything new there for anybody here? I didn't think so. So in the day that they eat of that one tree, every other tree in the garden is good, but that one tree, the day you eat of it, you shall die. Into Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Obviously, we know God never said you can't touch it, just not to eat it. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the divine command of listen and obey, that was the command of the garden. You must listen and obey what God says to you. The divine command of listening and obey. God then says to them while they're listening and obeying, do not eat of this one tree. By introducing a divine command, it then allows the adversary to come in and pervert the command. Because if there is not the command, then any tree in the garden can be eaten by the introduction of God introducing a divine command into the humans, into humanity at that point in time, it gives the opportunity for there to be the perversion of the command. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a couple of minutes. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, the three temptations. It was good to eat, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate it. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the garden trees of the garden. And God called to Adam and said, Where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Before the fall of man, nakedness was a beautiful thing. Now, after the fall of man, nakedness is still a beautiful thing in the right context. The human body is not ugly, it's not shameful. However, your nakedness standing right here, right now, if I'm naked, it's awkward. It's completely awkward. If I'm naked in my home, it is not. So once again, the sin of man has now created a divide. It has given us the opportunity to see something that was originally created for beauty, in perfection, to be co-heirs with God, to have dominion over this world, and to walk with him, and to talk with him, and to hear, and listen, and obey has now given us the opportunity to also know that the beauty of creation can be perverted. The beauty of creation and the commandments and all these different things, if you look at them from a different side, they magnify sin. They magnify things that are unhealthy. They magnify things in our life and in our heart that are of humanity, not of what God intended. And I'm going to kind of skip, obviously, just for time today, like I said, uh, I'm going to skip through some of, his, some of this. So I'm going to paraphrase real quick because I believe most of you understand uh, what then took place in the garden. And so then basically God says, oh my goodness, you know, you guys have eaten of the tree. And they're like, oh my goodness, we're naked. They hid from him. They were afraid for him. And then the man starts basically saying, oh, it was Eve. It was the woman you gave me. And then they were like blaming it on the serpent. And they're basically not taking responsibility uh, for any of that. God then in turn starts to lay out the consequences of the action. He says that the serpent is going to be cursed to the ground. The woman is going to have toil and childbirth. Also says that Adam is going to work, 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 and nothing's ever going to come from that And it goes through all of those areas. Now I want to skip through to uh, Genesis 3, um, 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made a tunic of skin and clothed them. It was the Lord who covered their nakedness. The Lord covered their nakedness in the original portion of the book because they did not know that they were naked. They did not know that that was a bad thing in their relationship with the Lord. So the Lord is already showing now that he is going to make a way to cover their naked, nakedness and get them back to be established with him as co-heirs. Right here, he starts covering them. He does not It doesn't say that they took an animal and killed it and they made it. It says God did it. God covered their nakedness again. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is very important. I hear all the time that it was their sin that got them cast out of the garden. And if you want to take a 50,000, 100-foot, 1,000-foot level on this, yeah, of course it was. If they hadn't have sinned, there hadn't have been this problem. And so, yes. However, God specifically tells them why he is casting them out of the garden right here. He's talking to what some would call the divine counsel. Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god sent him out of the garden of eden into the ground which he was taken and he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life so after he now knows, after humanity has now been tempted in the flesh, has succumbed to this temptation of the flesh, he kicks them out of the garden so that they can't live forever. The, in that fashion, in that form, they can't live forever. Now mind you, it never says in the scripture that they couldn't have eaten from the tree of life immediately. Never says it. They could have. In fact, it was, it was there for them to eat. They chose to not eat of the tree of life and live forever in that perfect form as co-heirs with God. And instead, they chose the knowledge of good and evil. Once they chose the knowledge of good and evil, God could not allow them to then eat of the tree of life and live forever. That wasn't why they were created. That wasn't why we were created. God's original intent throughout all of the bible was for us to listen and obey to that divine command listen and obey it's that simple when we boil down to however many laws you want to talk about whether it's the ones spoken by yeshua which are over 1000 in the new testament or the debate between the 611 or 613 commandments in the torah or you go all the way back to whatever you want to call the oral law or whatever that is because there's a lot of commentary on that But obviously, God spoke to people. The scripture is very clear about that. The original intent was God to be able to walk and speak directly with you. That was the original intent of creation. There wasn't a need for an intermediary. There wasn't a need for anything else. It was him and us. That was the original intention. There are so many times throughout the Bible, and I'm just going to name names because I can't go into all the specifics of it, but God talked directly to Cain right before Cain killed Abel. God talked directly to Noah. God talked directly to Abraham. God was speaking directly throughout the Old Testament to human beings, directly to them. He was attempting for us to come back to him. He wanted to reign with us from the get-go. Even at the foot of Sinai, after we were exiled, the nation was exiled into Egypt, and he brought us out to make us a people, he revolutionized everything. First he spoke. The children of Israel, they cringed. They, they were afraid. The same thing th- that they reacted in the garden. So God knows right there. It's like obviously that they're not ready because they reacted exactly the same way Adam did after the sin. They were afraid. Moses, you got to go. You go for us. And immediately what they did is they built a physical object of worship at the foot of Sinai. Even still, while Moses is on the mountain, God gives him the Torah, which is a revolutionary social justice document, economical document. It is a sacrificial document, and it revolutionizes all of the codes of that day. Code of Hammurabi, Babylonian codes. These were codes and laws that took place between kings and kings and kings. You and I, just regular people, we had no co heirship there, it was kings. God did not intend at the foot of Sinai, even after they were afraid, he did not intend for us to have an earthly king. He wanted to be our king. Once again, setting forth the pattern of the garden of God and us as co-heirs. Trying to make a way back. Proverbs 3 lays out the fact that the entire book is about getting us back to that completion of the garden. Go read it. It's one you should read all the time. It strikes the balance between the listening and the obeying and walking out our lives in the kingdom now and the kingdom to come. It's also, there's also some very interesting tiebacks in there to the fact that it, uh, it's talking about she is a tree of life. So there's some interesting things that if you get some time, just, just spend some time in Proverbs 3. Open to Proverbs 3 and ask the Lord to pray. Don't do it now, because you'll miss the points I'm trying to make. But uh, on your own time, go into Proverbs 3 and spend some time there. So now we're going to move into Mark chapter 1. Now that we know that the original commandment of God, the divine commandment, was for us to listen and obey to his voice, yet we gave in to our desire for knowledge and temptation. Now that I have established that I believe that the entire narrative of the Bible is about getting us back to the garden. Back to that relationship with God. To be co-heirs over this creation that he has created. Of which we're a part of. We're a part of that creation. We need to be able to find the way to choose the tree of life and not the evil that is in front of us Every single day. Because we continue to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now in Mark 1, we're going to spend the rest of our time today there. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah. As it was written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Makes his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Okay, so the beginning of the gospel of Jesus is letting us know about John. John was one who, who came before preparing the way for the Lord. Most of us know that. Most of us know the story about John. Um, some people call him John the Mikva man, uh, Yocanon the Immerser. Um, there's all kinds of names for the guy. Um, I prefer John. Uh, it's just a good old Midwestern name. So even though we know that wasn't his, his Hebrew name, so don't, don't give me letters later. Uh, And he preached, John preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, and the latchets of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. So he's already preaching, telling everybody Jesus is coming. The Mashiach is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's coming. And it came to pass in those days that Yeshua came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, here's some great stuff. And straight away... Coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. That is the same word tied back into Genesis for the Ruach. It's the same word. Descending like a dove upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately coming out of the water, John is met with the Father, the Holy Spirit, and he is the Son. In that place, at that time, they were all three there. They were all three working together. They were all three at that spot as he came up out of the water. Now, I've been baptized multiple times. We used to get baptized, I think, like once a week when we couldn't have kids. You know, for the remission of sins, like John had said. And we kept trying to rem- rem- make those sins get washed clean. Didn't matter how many times we went in, we weren't having a kid. But I could tell you, every time I came out of the water, it was exciting. It was refreshing. It was me making a public uh, proclamation to the Lord that I believed in Him. But the heavens never opened up. He didn't say, Thou art Thy Chris, with whom I am well pleased. Didn't happen. Didn't hear it audibly. I didn't see a spirit like a dove come floating out of the sky. None of that happened. In this moment, the Son of God has been baptized to start his ministry. And here comes the Father and the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be John or any of the bystanders to watch that? Pretty cool. Verse 12, it says, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. First thing Jesus did was not go get the disciples. First thing Jesus did was not go walking into Galilee or into Jordan or into Nazareth or into any of these cities and proclaim that he is the Son of God. It's not the first thing he did. First thing he did is he went into the wilderness. And it says that the Spirit drove him there. doesn't say that Jesus, who the Spirit had descended upon, then went. It said the Spirit, the same word again, that ties us back into Genesis in the creation, drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan and with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. 40 days, the first 40 days, he went straight to the wilderness and he said, here I am, Satan. What you got? And Satan showed him the world, the power, the food, everything. It could all be yours. And he was ministered to by the angels. The first sin of temptation He went to tackle that was the first thing he did he took the fight directly to the temptation and to the adversary that was there at creation he was directly ministered to by the angels of heaven this wasn't just an earthly battle the angels of heaven are ministering to the son of man who was driven to the wilderness by the holy spirit this is an earthly fight that has kingdom ramifications And a lot of our Western culture, we like to talk about the fact that there's a spiritual and a physical. In the first century, this was all interconnected. It's all interconnected. The fight that was happening in the flesh of Jesus in the wilderness, Yeshua the Messiah, was a fight that was also happening in the heavenly realms. These are the same angels who watched this adversary pervert creation. In scripture, it talks about two different types of angels. Very possibly, it was exactly the same angels that guarded the garden. The other ones had all kinds of different features that aren't spoken about here. They had a different role. The first Adam failed. And those angels' job was to keep them from the garden. Here comes the second Adam who immediately goes to the fight that the first Adam lost. And he is now ministered to by most likely the same exact angels that were there to keep Adam out of the garden. They were encouraging him. They were lifting him up. They were were keeping him going. They knew what was at stake. They knew what was at stake. They were there. They watched the creation be perverted. They had to stand guard to make sure that they didn't get back. They were there to help him not fall into the same temptation, the same sin, and ultimately to restore all of creation. The thing that Adam, Cain, Abraham, Noah, Moses, and the Torah could not do, Yeshua does. Yeshua does in those 40 days in that wilderness. Yeshua does it. All the men, some good, some bad. The Torah, the book of wisdom, the righteous laws, the things that these things could not do, Yeshua in the first 40 days goes and tackles the restoration of creation. He conquered death. That was coming to all of humanity by conquering the sin of all humanity. It was at that moment, that very moment, that the new creation started. He started the new creation from that moment. He went into the devil's backyard and said, you can't tempt me the way you tempted Adam. And it was just a matter of time before the adversary knew, your days are numbered. He goes on then to the cross to completely atone for this very thing. To completely atone for it. To give his life as the final sacrifice to completely fulfill this atonement. says in verse 14. Now after that, that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel." Before Jesus ever went into any city and started to preach the gospel, and that gospel word does come up in in other places. It's not like this is the first place in the New Testament. It's not something new that's there. The kingdom of God is at hand. He comes out of that wilderness and he says, the kingdom of God is hand. The time has been fulfilled. He has fulfilled that. The thing that we couldn't do, the thing Adam couldn't do, the thing Cain couldn't do, Abraham, the Torah, couldn't do it. Yeshua does it in the first 40 days. He cleanses the original sin. He conquers the death of that sin. There was a flood for 40 days, right? I remember something kind of like, it rained and poured for 40 long daisy daisies. Nobody else remember that? Oh man, they must have changed Sunday school then. But it took 40 days for God to cleanse the earth the last time he tried to cleanse the earth, and it took 40 days for him to do it again. Only this time it wasn't just about cleansing the humanity to restart that creation using the sea. It was about far bigger. Far bigger things. Could it be that in our quest to get back to the kingdom that we have only set our eyes on Sinai? That that is the destination that we have set our eyes on. And thus we become a wandering people in the wilderness. I believe Jesus, Yeshua, points the picture out perfectly for us. It's about the garden, it's about restoring creation. All of it. That includes Sinai, that includes the first century Judaism, that includes us. All of it. It's a restoration. Now, I want to I read from Matthew 27, verses, starting in verses 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is right after Yeshua was on the cross, and he cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It says, Think not that I have come to do away with the Torah and the prophets, heavens, no, I came to fulfill them. We're constantly worried with the Torah and the prophets, just like the people of that day. There's nothing wrong with that. There's wisdom in every one of those books, but we're missing something. And that is the garden, the original intent. Even in the greatest moments of the history of Israel as a nation, the greatest moments. Even in the moment when Joseph saved his family and saved all the Hebrew people because he was in Egypt. And all these great moments were missing the point that Yeshua came to put us back into the garden with them. Now, it may not look exactly like the original garden, I don't know. I have no idea. He's coming to restore all of creation. At that moment when he atoned for the sin that he had already conquered, he went looking for the fight. He didn't wait for the adversary to come to him. He went and put Satan on notice. Your time is up. And came out and then went and got the disciples. Came out and then started telling people that to repent. The kingdom of God is near. And then went out and fulfilled the rest of the role by hanging on a tree and dying. And once he died, the tombs of the dead were opened and they were raised. Pretty cool. Your salvation has come. You have been restored. You have been completed. The ones that had died before have been restored, been completed. Can you imagine walking around the holy city, walking around any city, hanging out over there at Andy Alligators, getting ready to go down a water slide, and all of a sudden, up up comes your cousin, like four generations back, been dead like 35 years. She's going to sit down on the water slide next to you and say, Chris, I'm here. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in in that city? The religious leadership of the day following in line with that. There was two primary thoughts. Being in exile and the fact that the Romans had the captivity over, so they were limited in what they could and could not do. And all of a sudden, this man who proclaimed to be the Messiah goes into the wilderness, conquers death, turns around teaches everybody about it teaches them about god teaches them about the spirit goes hangs on the tree and the moment he dies the tombs are opened we can i can't stress this enough we cannot minimize the importance of yeshua in anything The things that are written in our Bible that tell us that He did, and the things that happened because of His ministry, not only here, but what He has done forever, outside of time, they're unbelievable. They're they're awe-inspiring. So much so that when the centurion and those who were with him, they were keeping watch over Yeshua saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Have we weaponized our quest for Sinai to discredit the greatest person to ever walk on this earth? To minimize A centurion, he wasn't a Hebrew. He didn't know the Hebrew Bible. He didn't know any of that. He didn't know what Isaiah said about him. He didn't know anything. But he was like, that's the son of God. What just took place there was revolutionary. The plan of the Bible was always about making us a new creation and taking us back to the garden. It was not about taking us back to Sinai. It absolutely was not. The original intent of God, that's where we're supposed to be going. Remember, God wanted to speak to the Israelites at the base of the mountain. He wanted to restore. He tried to restore them multiple times, but none was worthy. And here comes Yeshua, the only one worthy to restore. And the first fight he does is to restore, is to set the captives free. To become the tree of life. To live abundantly. You were created to be co-heirs with God. Ones that were not afraid to hear. Ones that were not afraid to listen. And ones that were not afraid to obey. It's important for us to understand what Yeshua has done for us, not just at the cross, but through every area of his ministry. And for us today, now, where every wave of theology and doctrine and dogma and everything is going, whether it be in Judaism or it be in Christianity or in the Messianic movement, whatever, it is important for us to understand Yeshua has to be the foundation. He has to be. Everything else was built off of him. And in Mark 1, before he ever goes and starts to minister in the cities and get the disciples and start the pattern forward, it was him who hadn't forgotten about the fact that we Lusted with our eyes, lusted with our mind, and lusted with our flesh. He hadn't forgotten, and he went and he conquered it first. He hadn't forgotten. God hadn't forgotten, and the Spirit hadn't forgotten. We have a beautiful community here. We have a lot of children. We are very blessed. May we always teach them that Yeshua is the foundation by which all comes to life. Because in that, we can get back to the garden. In that, we can get back to our original intention, which was to have life, the tree of life. Too often, we're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I get it. I understand it. But that doesn't give you life. If you don't have Yeshua, you don't have life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together on the Sabbath day, Father, to, to honor you, to bless you, to study your word. Father, I'm in awe of how you orchestrated so many wonderful masterpieces throughout the Bible, throughout the time of this creation. Even in the moments that we refused to heed your counsel, even in the moments that we have gone wayward, even in the moments where we have used our knowledge to puff ourselves up. You still came and fought the one thing we could not win. You gave your life for everyone who has come and will come to be atoned back to the Father. Father, by the same Spirit that descended upon Yeshua, we ask that you would bring that Spirit to this community. That that Spirit would drive us into this community to do your work. Whatever that may be, Father. And that we would choose to eat of the tree of life and walk in Yeshua not just quest for knowledge. Father, continue making us a new creation. Continue to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us wisdom beyond our understanding, Lord. That we may be a body, a creation, that helps us share in the return of Messiah Yeshua. For we love you, we thank you, and we bless you in this place. In the name of Yeshua, we humbly come before you. Amen and amen. Ephraim.
1: If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke in a and said, tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel." Yuvarekhaha Arunaai ghi ne Panah V'ilecha ru Lecha Lecha na vi May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.